Okay, y'all, did you have a good summer? It's okay if you had a bad one. Do you know that? You are free because of the grace of God to have a bad summer. The Hattons had a good summer. We had a good summer. And tradition has it that I give you some highlights on my first Sunday back. And it needs, it needs to happen, too, because I have, I've generally forgotten how to preach. I've forgotten how to communicate. It's been a long time since I've been up here. So we will uh, get warmed up. The first highlight was our trip to Colorado at the YXL camp. It's a high school leadership youth camp for PCA youth. This is all over the country. Uh, we went with, uh, our whole family went, and we went with the Smeds Hammers, who are on that leadership team, which is one of the highlights uh, these folks, this leadership team, actually gets together every year. They're leaders in the PCA, pastors, uh, lay leaders, and they get together and they get to dream about God using them in kids' lives. <laughs> High school kids all over the country, they get to dream about it. They get to pray about it. That was a real highlight. The other highlight, and it's kind of a backwards highlight, was uh, actually driving to and fro in their van to Colorado from Texas. There's one thing that we learned, though, if we wanted to have a, a, a sane trip, is we had to separate Ty and Jay. They cannot sit next to each other. There is a no-touching rule. Someone has to be in the middle, and some poor soul had to sit between them sometimes. Right, buddy? Yeah. Uh, we also learned that they have the easiest bathroom breaks possible. Pull over to the side of the road, throw open the van, and many a tree has been watered between here and Colorado. At Horn Creek, I spoke eight times in eight days on John 17. Remember, we went through John 17. What was the big idea? Knowing God. Uh, it was, um, how do I say it? I sensed God's power. I sensed God's work in me and preaching it and in the students and in the staff that were there. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time together. Uh, I enjoyed the students. And I enjoyed a different venue of preaching. I love preaching to y'all. I really do. But I enjoyed preaching to different age groups and different, at a camp, you know, dressed really, really casual. Uh, it was wonderful to have a different venue to preach at, too. Another highlight was one weekend we went to my brother Pete's place in Oklahoma, and we literally, I'm not kidding, we literally floated in their new pool one Saturday all day and just talked talked honestly about our lives and our marriages and parenting and our churches and gospel ministry. Uh, and then after an all-day talk, we went to Oklahoma City to a really cool restaurant that had incredible local beer and incredible sandwiches. And uh, this is typical Pete, though. You know, we're, he's telling us what to order, and so we try the sandwiches. And you know what he orders? <laughs> he orders a big plate of cheese fries. That's Pete for dinner, a big plate of cheese. I don't think we ate anything all day floating in the pool, and he has cheese fries. Uh, it was incredible. But, and then we talked more. The four of us have never had such a relationally rich and relaxed time together ever like that. It was so healing, and it was a gift from God. Another summer highlight was long, lazy time with the family, just doing ordinary life. You know, I think sometimes we think we have to have these super extraordinary vacations and lives and experiences with God. And he's about the ordinary. 
He's about long conversations and just getting up and going to work in the morning and trying to do what he calls you to do in a day and helping somebody when a phone rings and putting something aside and focusing on someone and listening to them. And it's kind of like a man plants seed and he goes to sleep. And when he wakes up in the morning, the kingdom of God exploded. It's kind of like that. And so we had late night conversations, which is just completely uncharacteristic of me. I was talking till two or three in the morning. I never do that. I never did that when I was single. And so when I had to get up two weeks ago early, it was very, very difficult to get out of bed because of these conversations we would have. Another family highlight, and he's here. I'll call it Conversations with Ty. My conversations with Ty over the summer, because we spent a lot of time together, didn't we, buddy? And we had some really rich conversations. One day, it's just he and I driving uh, to Academy to get some flag football stuff. And, and from the back seat, he says, Dad, I want to eat a crawdad. I said, what? A crawdad, Dad. I want to eat a crawdad. I said, you barely eat a hamburger. How are you going to eat a crawdad? Well, he proceeds to tell me how you take off the shell, and there's good meat in there, and it's good, and I want to eat it. And I'm thinking, where in the world do you come up with this kind of stuff, right? So I'm sharing this with Knox, and he's like, Dad, he probably was on SpongeBob, saw a button, hit YouTube, and there was a crawfish there. Who knows? And they're telling him how to eat a crawfish. Another time, we're rolling around uh, wrestling, and he says to me, it's kind of like one of these conversations Christina was talking about. He says, Dad, who's the boss of God? Now, those of you that don't live in the video world, you are lost right now. But the boss is a big deal when you play a video game. You've got to beat the boss to win the game. Who's the boss of God? And he said, it's a hard question, Dad. I said, that is a hard question, son. What do you think? I said, if, if God is the biggest and he's the strongest, more than any monster or boss, who could be his boss? The whole family went to Chewy's recently to celebrate Bryn's birthday, and we knew this would be the last time in a long time we'd be together like this. So we stayed for a while, hours, to Ty's frustration. <laughs> Finally, he couldn't take it any longer, and he starts yelling at us, this is taking hours, right? Look around. He takes his finger, look around. No one's here. Sure enough, I look up, and there's not a soul in this restaurant. <laughs> I love this little guy. I love his passion. I love everything about him. Um, there's, one <laughs> there's one low light. And I was saying uh, goodbye to my daughter. And that's about all I'm going to say. What's the preaching plan for the fall? What are we doing? We're going to start Romans 6 through 8 in three weeks. I hope you all are ready. We're doing this with two churches. We're going to do it with Redeemer Temple down south with David Rapp. We're going to do it with Cascade Presbyterian in Eugene, Oregon with Shaner Newsom. We're going to video Skype, and we're going to work on our sermons, and then on Wednesday we're going to get together, and we're going to talk a little more deeply about the text and kind of push each other with the text and push it how we're going to apply it 
push what the gospel, the good news in the text is. What's the target? And we're going to do this just as we did last time because it was beneficial for all of us to do that. And hopefully it's beneficial for you because I am loving this idea of bringing more and more people alongside us when we do ministry. I look at the New Testament and I'm like, even Paul didn't go it alone. Paul. So, we looked at Romans 1 through 5 last spring. What was the big idea? Do you all remember? Here it is. You ready? Here's all of what we did last spring. What is the gospel? That was Romans 1 through 5. Guess what Romans 6 through 8 is? How you experience the gospel. What is the gospel? How you experience the gospel. I am actually more scared of Romans 6 through 8 than any part of Romans that we've done so far. Why? Because we are going to tackle how does real life change come about. How do you really change a life? How does a life really change? There are so many answers today. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, it's going to be shocking when you actually hear how a life changes. It's probably going to be what none of us ever thought. We're also going to have to figure out what in the world is Romans 7 about? Who is this spiritual split personality in Romans 7? I do what I don't want to do, what I most hate I do, I do the do, do, don't, don't. What is this? Who is this person? Is it a Christian? Is it an unchurched person? If it's a Christian, is it an ordinary Christian, a normal Christian, or is it a super saint Christian, or an unvictorious Christian, or a, a spiritual Christian? What, what, who is that person? We've got to tackle that. So I'm looking so forward to doing that. And then what about the law in Romans 7? Is the law bad? Is the law an agent of life change? Yes, no, combination? Ah, we're really in for it now. So we've got three weeks before we hit Romans 6 through 8. Three weeks. So you know what we're going to do? I want you to consider what we do in these next three weeks. You could title it a miniseries, Preparation for Romans 6 through 8. Today, today we're going to prepare ourselves for the law. The law. Aren't you excited about that? Yeah, I am too. We're going to start with the confusion over the law. And who's coming up to read? Come on up, honey. Let's read. We're going to read First uh, Chronicles. Are you ready? Chapter 13. This is page 345 in your Bible, under the chairs. First Chronicles 13. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture land, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our Lord to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled is all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up there from the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. 
And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid to God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I am glad you, you pronounced that. I thought it was Ohio. That was the better translation of his name. Fantastic. Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you give us clarity in the mind, realness in the heart? Oh, Jesus, would you show up producing change on the spot? And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, this is a very unpopular story in the Bible. It's right up there with killing the Canaanites, isn't it? It's shocking. I mean, it makes us ask very uncomfortable questions like, how could God do that? And then what kind of God could do that? It makes us ask like, what about poor Uzzah? I mean, he was only trying to help. And where's the good news in this passage? Where's the, the healing and the help in this passage, the spiritual resources in this passage? It's a very difficult passage. You know, the Oxford English Dictionary defines a sermon as a discourse spoken, spoken or written on a serious subject containing instruction and exhortation. Number two, a long or tedious discourse or harangue. Number three, to utter a serious or earnest exhortation, especially a moral one. Number four, with a little angry edge to it, to give moral or religious advice in a self-righteous, condescending, or obtrusive way. Ouch. Instruction, exhortation, a moral, spiritual advice. That's the way the culture sees preaching today. That's how the world looks at the church in the sermon today. Bishop Allison of South Carolina says, Now lexicographers do not themselves establish what words mean. They merely record how words are actually used, perceived, and understood in society. This is the world we live in. He goes on to say, it is virtually impossible to find a single definition of preaching that leads one to believe that preaching of a sermon could be a life-giving a life event that's warmly received and attended to by its hearers. He continues, Native Americans in Quebec call the wooden stick they used to club a salmon to death a priest. A priest. Well, some guys at the gym might think that too, for me. Just a little side note. Could there be, look, could there be a more dire judgment on Christian churches than this? Clearly we have failed to teach the good news of the Christian faith and have rather reduced Christianity to a tedious scolding. Here's my question, and I wrestled with it all summer, and I'm wrestling with it right now. If, if real Christianity is good news, why aren't people flooding into the church? If real Christianity is good news, why aren't they beating the doors? Why aren't people beating the doors down to get inside, to hear it? 
They did in Jesus' day. You might say because of passages like Uzzah and killing the Canaanites. And I want to say honestly, maybe that could be an answer. I mean, it's no accident you take a religion course, the first two texts they're going to take you to, to kind of disrupt any Christians in there, and certainly if anyone's unchurched, to keep them out of the church. Killing of the Canaanites and Uzzah. It's going to be two of the texts you use. So maybe that's right. Or there are more and more pastors and more and more churches today that are actually agreeing with the Oxford English Dictionary's take on things in the church and its take on the sermon. In other words, more and more people are not flocking to churches or to hear a sermon today because the church has become a place not where the good news is heard, but where good advice is heard. It's where you get scolded. A sermon is no longer about the gospel. A sermon is about the law. You get a scolding. In his new book, Vanishing Grace, winning author Philip Yancey says, the church is used to the law. Now, we're going to talk about the law a lot today. The law, what I'm going to mean by it is ten. God's ten laws plus the endless, infinite, exhaustive list that you and I generate called little laws. You live in a family, there are family laws. You live out of you, you create lots of laws, like the law of thinness, thou shalt be thin. The law of success, thou shalt be successful. The law of not what to wear, don't wear that. I mean, there's all kinds of laws we generate. Cultures generate them. Universities generate them. Churches generate them. They're everywhere. They're little L laws, along with God's capital L, 10 laws. He says, the church's use of the law today has a huge hand in the church's decline in America and Europe. It's his latest book. It's kind of a shockwave. More and more books and more and more Christian leaders are even coming out and saying that the church's use of the law today is not only driving unchurched people away from the church, it's driving the churched away. We are unconverting the converted today. One leader says it this way, the church has stirred up a league of burnouts. Everyone's spiritually burned out. Are you exhausted spiritually? Welcome to church. In a book I highly recommend by Mockingbird called Law and Gospel, the authors, they say this, some of the worst historical cases of political sins like the French Revolution, Nazism, Stalinism, were underpinned by deeply moralistic ideologies. Enlightenment in the French Revolution, purity in Nazism and Stalinism, and a sense of utopian striving in all three. Fifty Shades of Grey. Now I got your attention. Right. Did he? Fifty Shades of Grey. Best-selling juggernaut not now film, right? Famously features sadomasochist sexuality. You know that's what that book is about. And the movie's about, right? It had a specially high, high, high record book buying and attendance in the movie in a certain part of the country and not in other parts of the country. Highest in the Bible Belt. Not in irreligious, unchurched areas. Urban areas. In the Bible Belt. 
Most of you know this statistic, and you should know it by now. I said it when I first got here 17 years ago. I think I said it in the middle, and now I'm saying it right now. It is well documented, really well documented, that at homes, churches, and denominations that have the strictest laws, rules concerning drinking have the highest abuse rates. Something is seriously wrong with how we're handling the law. We, I mean churched and unchurched. Law, I mean the ten laws and the endless infinite lists we generate. What is so seriously wrong with how we handle the law? There are two things I want you to get out of this sermon. This is one of them. Take a nap and I'll wake you up for the next one, okay? Here it is. The law today is not bad news anymore. The law today is doing something God never designed it to be or do. We've turned the law into good news. The law has become keepable in how you honor and please God. The law has become attainable to live an ideal life. How do you live an ideal life? Well, the law helps you, makes you live an ideal life. To be an ideal person. To bring in an ideal world. The law has become achievable in generating maximum human flourishing. Blessing in your life. The law has become today life-giving. The law has become an agent of life change. How do you change your life? Go to a list. Go to a law. Use God's ten, but I've got a lot of spiritual ones I can give you on how to fix your marriage, how to raise your kids, how to, how to, how to, how to. We today have an obsessive, an obsessively optimistic look about the law today. And it's killing the mission and culture of the church. It's creating uh, spiritual burnouts. It's hardening unchurched people to the church. It's turning the church's teaching into good advice instead of good news. This is where Uzzah comes in. This is where this story comes in, and it doesn't come here to help uh, hurt us. It comes here to, to actually heal us. The story of Uzzah is unbelievable good news. So you've got to hang with me to see it. Can you do that? Give me 15 minutes, and you will walk away saying, this is my favorite part of the Bible. So let's do it. Look at verses 1 through 8. Have you ever wondered what a spiritual revival would look like on a national level? There you got it. You got, you got King David just became king. This, this revival is bigger than any Billy Graham crusade that overflowed any major NFL stadium or A&M's new 100-whatever-thousand, Penn State's 110,000, Michigan's 108,000. Packed out. This is better than several months of Sunday services at the 16,000-seated Summit Arena in Houston, Texas to hear Joel Olstein. This is a national revival. Every leader, the king, the leaders, the people, they're all seeking God. They're all trusting God. They're crammed into a town called Kiriath-Jerim, eight miles west of Jerusalem, 
for one goal, and the one goal only, and that's to bring the ark back to, to Israel, to Jerusalem. And that signifies, as he says in the text, we didn't seek God in Saul's day. The ark is God. We're bringing God back to Israel. This is an ex- it's electric. The whole people from all the way, that's why they're telling you about the Nile in Egypt, the, the promised land that David has conquered from these borders, they've all crammed into this town and they are spiritually electrified. All of Israel is worshiping God. All of Israel is wanting to be used by God in the world. All of Israel is seeking to build their messy lives around God. All of Israel is experiencing God. God is real in Israel. These are eight verses of spiritual electricity. Verse 8, And David and all of Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lies and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And then as one commentary says, in two short verses, everything is shot to hell. An ox pulling the ark stumbles, the ark tips. Uzzah, he's just a well-intentioned ark attendant. Sees it, seizes it to keep it from hitting the ground. And now call 911. Verse 10, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put his hand out to the ark and he died there before God. And David was angry, you bet he was, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez Uzzah. Perez literally means outbreak against Uzzah. They named the place God broke out against God. I mean, God broke out against Uzzah. And just like that, the revival is over. Or is it? Or is there another kind of revival that's actually deeper and better than the ones we think? What just happened? Why is this passage in the Bible? For thousands and thousands and millions and thousands and thousands of generations, millions and millions of people to read, to think about, to be shocked by, to to be reached by, to then teach to their kids, to have conversations at Kids Quest and Sunday schools. What in the world is this passage about? Here's the answer. I really have three things I want you to hear. This is number two. We got three. The three's at the end. So here's number two. Here's the answer, and then we're going to prove it. To heal through humility. This passage is actually here. The shocking story of Uzzah is to actually give you and me a healing humility. David's response is the only response. Did you see that? Out of all the thousands and thousands and thousands of all of Israel there, only David's response is recorded. No one else's to what just happened. You know what that means? It's the right response. It's the divinely sanctioned response. This is how you and I should respond to Uzzah. You ready? Verse 12. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? Now, it's important to remember that David is the king, and David is a believer. So this is a church person. This is not an unchurched person needing to become churched. 
This is not an unbeliever having a conversion. This is a Christian's experience. This is a believer in Yahweh's experience. This is actually, as we're going to see when we get to Romans, the ongoing experience of a Christian. David is experiencing the healing humility of the law. Do you know what's in the ark? Do you know what contained, what the ark contained? In stone tablets? God's law. Ten laws. Now those ten commandments had generated applications that were used in Israel's life in its specific time, in its specific place in redemptive history. So there are things that are applied, that are applied there, but are not applied in chapter 4 of the, of the redemptive story. One specific application of the Ten Commandments with respect to the ark was only the Levites can carry it. Uzzah was not a Levite. Only a priest could carry it. Uzzah was not a priest. Days later, uh, when they're going to try this again in chapter 15 in Chronicles, he's, David's talking to priests, and this is what he says, because you, priests, did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Notice he says us, not Uzzah, us. We were Uzzah. Because we did not seek him according to the law. The law is always good, beautiful, and true. Hear me. We're going to hear that in Romans. The law is always good, beautiful, and true. The law always points what it means to be human. This is what a human being looks like. The law always points to maximum human flourishing. But the law can never give it. The law can never give you the good, the beautiful, and the true. The law can never make you an ideal person or generate an ideal world. The law can never maximize human flourishing. The law only levels you. David's response, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? How can I bring the ark of God home to me? The answer is, David, what? I can't. And now, healing, humility has come to David. And that healing humility will give you life. And it will put spiritual energy into your sails. Because what will happen now is when you are able to say, I can't, you get healed. I can't bring God to me. I can't bring his love to me. I can't bring his blessings to me. Healing humility. I can't control God. I can't control my life. I can't control my relationships. I can't control my situations and my circumstances. I can't control anything I care about. Healing humility. I can't can't live and be that thin person. Healing humility. I can't be the ideal mother. I can't be the Proverbs 31 wife. Which, side note, please don't ever say that to me. I can't stand that. Proverbs, what? There is no Proverbs 31 wife. That's the point. Not how to be one. 
I can't live up to my parents' expectations, my teachers, my coaches, my professors. Healing humility. I can't even live up to my own image of myself. Healing humility. I can't even, I can't change my heart. I can't change my life. I can't change me. I can't fix me. Healing humility. How can I bring the ark of God home to me? Answer, the law's great gift to you and me is to make you feel deep down in your bones, I can't. And you get healed by the power of humility. Look at verse 13. So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Again, David's response is highlighted here, right? He's how we should respond to what happened to Uzzah. Obed-Edom is a priest. David took the ark to a priest. Now watch what happens when David does this. Verse 14, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. The last word in this incredible, stunning, shocking story is not the death of Uzzah. The last word is blessing. Life. Flourishing. Maximum human flourishing. Revival. And here's what I don't want you to ever forget. I want you to put it, write it in your Bible. I want you to think about it this week. Don't miss this. The blessing is found in a priest. The blessing is found in a priest. Years later, there's a better priest. And this better priest doesn't just honor the laws of the ark. He takes, he takes the place of ark breakers, lawbreakers. This better priest comes along and he takes Uzzah's place. This better priest comes along and he becomes the worst ark abuser in the history of the world He becomes the worst lawbreaker that ever walked this planet. He becomes the greatest adulterer that ever lived. He becomes the most heinous sexual deviant that ever set foot on this earth. He becomes the greatest liar. He becomes the worst idolater. He becomes the worst adulterer. He becomes the most arrogant, self-righteous, the person you can't stand the most, he becomes him and more that ever was, the greatest serial sinner that ever lived, ever would be, and ever could be. And God strikes him down. They call the place where he struck down Perez, Jesus outbreak against Jesus the cross and now the last word to you to me 
the word that packs churches, the word that people flock to, there is no accident that sinful, messed up people everywhere in the Gospels flocked to Jesus. They didn't run from him. Who did they run from? The Pharisees. What kind of church are we going to be? What kind of culture are we going to have? Good advice or good news? The last word in this supposedly heinous story is good news. Grace, forgiveness, mercy, human flourishing, deep security, an identity that never tumbles or fails or falls apart. Find healing through humility, right? The law's only power, and it's a great one, is to level you, not elevate you. Find blessing in the better priest because the gospel's power is to elevate you, not level you. 